we are in we will move through part of this chapter today um as we saw at the end of chapter four last week uh paul sort of begins to address some of the concerns and, and some of the error that the thessalonian church had and he continues down that same uh trail of thought into chapter five discussing the second coming of jesus christ there's a different emphasis, however, and so we want to look at that emphasis for you and I, uh, because I think it's very pertinent to the body of Christ today. Um, we we also and we talked about some of the hysteria and, and some of the abandonment as a result of that hysteria. We looked at some of the cultural uh, predilections of of um, this region as we studied through uh, chapter four and the propensity of the people to sort of grab onto. We saw in Acts chapter 17, uh, as Paul is there at the Areopagus, as he's left Thessalonica and he's gone on to Greece, and their their desire uh, of the Stoics and the Epicureans to sort of focus on and, and to the abandonment of all else, to focus on these new things. And we want to hear new, they, in many respects, they had itching ears, and they were open to everything, and they wanted to hear everything, but they would forsake the important things for the value of the entertainment, if I can phrase it that way. And, and so that happened also, it seems, in Thessalonica. And there was, uh, as Paul addresses those who were unwilling to work, both in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, and, and, and just this, and, and we equated that to some of the hysteria that surrounds us today. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, in, in a slightly different light, because it's the light that Paul talks about it here this morning. So, um, we need to understand first and foremost though, that that should be that kind of hysteria that that um, to to use a, a a cliche that we're so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good uh, that that's not how we should live. That's not part of our regular Christian life, and so we want to address that a little bit this morning because that's the that's what Paul is talking about here. Turn with me in First Thessalonians chapter five. Let's read verse one. Paul says. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, I think that it's twofold. I think the re there's two reasons why Paul doesn't need anybody to write uh, to them about these times and seasons. Times and seasons, as we get into this, we're going to find that the context demands that we understand that phrase to sort of be the minutia, the details, uh, the when of Jesus' return. And... You know, you can just see people, because there's a desire even today, to know the exact date and time that Christ will return. And the, part of the reason that we would fall susceptible to that is because there is such hope associated with it. There's such desire to see the redemption of everything and the uh, everything being brought into subjection under Christ. And we're looking forward to that. And so there's no, nothing wrong with that expectation and that hope. In fact, we're going to find, again, that that's part of what we are to talk about. But all these, these ins and outs and these details, uh, one of the common themes regarding them, the, the times and the seasons, is that they're going to remain a mystery. They're not going to be known. There's a lot that we know in a general general sort of categorical sense. 
but it's really hard to piece together an accurate without any conflict or inconsistency. Uh, this event follows this event that follows this event. Now, I, I think that there is some, uh, and we're going to talk about that in here in just a moment. There is something that we should do. There, none of this is to uh, say that this is an excuse or that we should abandon uh, study. Uh, you know, you, you look at the book of Revelation, for example, and it says that if you study this book, that there's there's a particular blessing in association with it. And I'm I'm not of the mind that that is referring to the entire Bible, though that is obviously true. I think that that is a reference to the contents and the things that are being discussed in the book of Revelation. This looking forward to, of all of those things, the culmination of time, where Christ does return, where I'm convinced the church is raptured from the earth, where the um, uh, Antichrist does the things that the Antichrist does here on this earth, and the return of Christ and the millennial reign, and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. All of that looking forward to, and the, the particular blessing associated with that. When does it happen? Is the question, and that's what's being discussed here by uh, Paul, and that's the question being asked. And Paul is saying, listen, there's no need that I write unto you. Those things are going to remain a mystery. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, it's called the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus speaking about the end times. Now then, and I'll just tell you that there are differences of opinion, obviously, right? We were teasing about the uh, Calvinism-Armenianism debate this morning just a little bit. Eschatology, end time study, has the same kind of debate. And on the end, we can all conclude uh, that, that there are some certain things that will happen. That no matter what camp you fall into, everyone agrees that Jesus is coming back. And then when he comes back, the nature of his return is different than his first advent, his first coming to earth. It's not a coming to seek and save that which is lost. It's coming in the form of judgment and a, and a complete reformation uh, reformation being the wrong word, a complete recreation of the heavens and the earth. I mean, at any camp that you're in, that's where we end. And we can all agree about that. How we get from A to B may be a point of discussion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a point of division. Okay, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36, but at that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So we're never going to know the, the exact time. It's not going to be known. And, and so Paul says there's, there's really no need to write about the minutiae, the times and the seasons, because it's going to happen. right? And, and I'm not saying that, and I teased about this a couple weeks ago, but I'm not saying that Paul is a pantheologist, that everything's just going to pan out in the end. Uh, but there's no need to write about it. The other thing that, that is completely inferred here is that Paul taught them about this when he was there. That when Paul was in Thessalonica, as short a time as it was, he taught them everything that they really needed to know about it. Which is an interesting thought, because as far as we can tell, Paul was only in Thessalonica for you know a matter of weeks. And he founded a church and established some some instruction and doctrine for this young church. And then here in these epistles, continues to write to them. And they were a successful church. We saw that in the first few chapters. Paul commended them, uh, and not only there, but in other books, um, being the churches of Macedonia, and those things ministering to his needs. 
uh, and, and his complimentary statements regarding that, they're referenced in other books. So here's this young church that falls under persecution nearly immediately, uh, is doing the work of evangelism, sending out missionaries, all of these things. And Paul says, listen, you, you've received enough. I don't need to write on you these things because you already know about them. Right? We talked about this stuff. We talked enough about it that this is really all you need to know. Which is interesting because modern times, what do we divide about? We divide really, I mean, there's more than we, but, but it has become this really big deal. Yet here's Paul saying, there's no need. Jesus himself said, we're not going to know the data. We're not going to know the minutia and the details and all of the, the ins and the outs. We're going to have sort of a big picture concept, and that's what Scripture gives us. So, it shouldn't, like I said, it's not an excuse to abandon all pursuit in the Word of God re regarding eschatology. We should study it. We should be invested in, in our understanding of it. Form an opinion. Don't let it be a divisive uh, opinion, however. I don't think that it's an... I personally am not dogmatic in my eschatology. Though the more study you do, the more dogmatic you tend to become. Um Instead, though, what this should be, what Paul should provide uh, for us is a motivation to study and to show ourselves approved, that we would rightly divide the Word. That we would say, this is what we read, both in the Old and the New Testament, all of the looking forward to, all of the prophecy that's, that has yet to be fulfilled, all of those things, this is where we see it headed. And to that end... Uh, what is the main point of Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians? He, he, he's not telling them that we need to continually study, that this should be our only point of conversation. No, what Paul is telling us is um, that what we're doing in the meantime is the important point of conversation. That how I would conduct myself myself today in the absence of Christ and leading up to his return is the important point. In Acts chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, in Acts chapter 1, does anybody remember as we turn to Acts chapter 1, what happens in Acts chapter 1? Anybody? Jesus' ascension. Jesus goes into heaven, right? So, so here in this, knowing that, well, let's read it in Acts chapter 1, because in the context, here we, we have these, you know, Jesus Christ commissioning the believers, you and I, his disciples there in particular, but continuing on with you and I, go out, preach the gospel, make disciples everywhere. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the world. That's what he tells us to do. And then he goes into heaven. He didn't take the time to say, listen, these are the things that you need to be watching for when, when newspapers become a thing. These, <laughs> these are the kinds of headlines that you should pay attention to. right? He didn't say any of that. What did he say? Do the work that I've sent you to do while I'm gone. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says, When they therefore come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? What did the disciples want to talk about? Jesus, let's talk about the end times. When are you establishing your kingdom? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own power. Right? That's not for you to know, guys. 
Paul says, it's not needful that I would write you about these things. Verse 8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus, we want to talk about the minutia, the when is this going to happen. Jesus said, I'm not going to talk to you about that. It's not your business. Your business is being my witness. I'm going to give you power not to know the end times, but power to accomplish tasks while I'm gone. And he says in verse 9, And when he had thus spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a great cloud received him in the, out of their sight. I mean, it's the most epic mic drop that has ever happened in all of history. Here's the most important things. I'm out. And he goes up. <laughs> that might be slightly irreverent, right? But we understand the point. He didn't, he didn't have to say anything else. This is the needful thing. This is what's important. Paul is echoing that same sentiment. He's not saying that we shouldn't study it. I mean, Jesus himself was the revealer to John of all of the things written in, in Revelation. right? I mean, it's obviously important. He's, he's given us something to study and to read. But it's not the most important. It's like Mary and Martha sitting, uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is about the business of preparing the meal and all of those things. And that's obviously important, but it's not the needful thing. And this is in the same idea. So what is important is how we occupy, how we live in this foreign land, because we are, according to the scripture, we are foreigners in a foreign land. We're pilgrims. This is not our final resting place. It's not where we're originally from any longer. We're supposed to occupy in this land until he returns. And you know what? Knowing the minutia, knowing the exact date, even if we did, if we knew, we knew the specific moment in history where that would happen, history or in the future when that would happen, doesn't change the commission, doesn't change the mission for you and I. So it's a secondary thing. And I, I'm not big on secondary doctrines. I think that, I don't know that there are many of those. However, I think that this might be a secondary doctrine. So throwing that out there for, for, for you who like to noodle about those things. Okay, so Paul says, it's of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. I've already talked to you about it, given you everything you need to know. But what's more important is what we're doing while we're here. And the rest of the chapter, in many respects, fills that out. We're not going to get through all of it today. We're going to look at just, just the first part, but all that's what the rest of the chapter is about. How do we live in the absence of Christ? <clears throat> Verse 2 and 3. Paul says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety... Then suddenly destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So, Paul uh, here, it, it, I, I said that he, it's obvious that he had taught, and this is where it alludes to. You yourselves know perfectly. Here's this young church, and they have this perfect, this exact, accurate, and, and the word also means diligent understanding of the return of Christ. Everything that I gave you, I mean, we've already talked about it. That, that's Paul's emphasis here. 
But there's some terms that I want to take some some time and and define, as it were, um, in this verse. So you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, right? So we have the day of the Lord is something that we need to understand what it is. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Verses 5 through 12. <clears throat> now, in the middle of this, now obviously the context is, is the end times, but in the middle of this, we're going to encounter some familiar verses. We just need to realize that that's their context. Uh, we sometimes use them as points of application. They're still applicable in the sense that we use them, but understand that that is their context, is, is in discussion of the end times. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Verse 6, whereby the world that was being overflowed with water perished. And what are we talking about here? What's this a reference to? Noah's flood. Right? This is a discussion about Noah's flood. <laughs> I can't help. I can't help it. I can't help. So there's a guy on YouTube called Conversations with Calvinist, and he makes fun of churches. I don't know where, I mean, obviously I know where he stands because he tells you where he stands. Amongst other things, though, he makes these funny videos and he's like, he, it was the, the interdenominational field trip to the answers in Genesis, answers in Genesis, I can't say that, ark, right? So they built this life-size ark and it's pretty impressive. And, I'm, and I know people have gone there and yeah, I would love to go and visit. So you show up and there's, you got the Baptists, you got the Pentecostals, you got the United Methodists, and they're all they're all being made fun of equally, right? So I mean, he's an equal opportunity, but the and I don't know why he chose to pick on the the Pentecostal about this, but he's like, <laughs> but the Pentecostal says they got some things wrong, right? There is no way Israel carried something that big in the wilderness for forty years. There's no rings on it even. <laughs> No, not that ark. We're talking about Noah's ark, and it's just, it's just funny. Like I said, he picks on everybody. I think he's I think he's respectful in the way that he does it, and I find it hilarious. Uh, anyway, I can't I, <laughs> I can't move on. That's a picture in my mind, completely off topic, but on topic because we're talking about Noah's flood, right? People choose to ignore the fact that the world today is different from the world prior to the flood. That not everything has not continued as it has always. We can't look at current processes and interpolate those backwards in history for eons and eons and understand that that's the way it's always been because it hasn't been. They choose to ignore it. And not only that, but there is evidence within the same uh, scientific quote unquote discovery and methods that they're looking at to make those inferences that they are choosing to ignore. Right? We, we understand that. We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about those things, but here we have this reference to Noah's flood. What is key about Noah's flood here is that it was judgment. Okay? That is, that is the, what we need to understand. Why did God send this flood? Because the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of man was always evil continually. It was judgment. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. Right, So we have the world that we live in now and that has existed since Noah's day. 
being the same earth, but different, affected differently, being reserved by God himself for, for judgment. I mean, that, that is it. There is a judgment coming. Now, when we talk about, uh, I'm going to get ahead of myself here just a little bit, but I'm going to get ahead of myself because I think right now is a good time to talk about it. Here is Paul, and he talked about a couple of other things. He talked about thief in the night. Oh, geez, we're on the wrong, sorry. Talk about thief in the night and travail, right? That travail, as a woman in travail, woman in labor, there's, there's two things. Number one, that thief in the night is unexpected, right? There's two, they're just, they're just metaphors. They're unexpected. You're not expecting somebody to show up, although maybe more and more, and depending on where you live, maybe you do expect it. It's just a matter of time. But generally speaking, it's unexpected. Thieves aren't going around and sending mailers ahead of themselves. You know, it used to be, uh, when in my history, worked as a land surveyor, and in the state of Idaho, surveyors did not have right of entry, right? Every corner is a public monument, and you are bound by state law to operate in a certain way and to actually locate those monuments, physically set your eyes upon them. However, you have no right to enter property to do that, which you know, poses a problem. I only encountered it once in my career as a land surveyor where the per person just refused. They just refused access. We just snuck in later. <laughs> we had to do something. Uh, and we were not the only ones that had done that, and we were probably not going to be the last that did that. Didn't change the survey one one lick. You could have. It was a corner that could be calculated, and that's you could do that, but there's a monument there. So by state law, you got to do this. Okay. Those laws changed, and what they do today, you have right of entry. However, you have to send notice in certified mail that you're going to be entering the property. That's not thief in the night model, right? We went in late after work. We waited. We we literally waited around till we saw the guy leave his house, and then we snuck in. And I mean, we were there for probably no more than forty seconds. Get in there, hit the corner, record its location, and get out. Today, you send a letter. There's no sneaking around. You have a right of entry, but you have to be courteous about it. You have to let them know you're going to be there, that you're going to be on their property. You actually have to notify so many people in a certain radius. It is no longer thief in the night stuff. It's expected. They know you're coming. That's the metaphor that's being used here. If we turn to Matthew, hold your place in 2 Peter, but turn to Matthew chapter 25, because Jesus as well talked about this thief in the night, this unexpectedness. Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, he says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Right? We don't know. It's an unexpected time. We know it is coming, but we don't know when. Okay? And I want you to pay attention there. He says, Watch, therefore. Watch. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that thought here in just a moment. In verse 3 of our, our text here this morning, uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. They're not paying attention. They're not expecting it. It isn't what they're looking for. Everything is going well. We expect safety. We expect prosperity. We expect everything to go just as it has been going. It's just going to roll along and we're going to be fine. It's, it's unexpected. When they're not expecting anything, that's when we should expect it. That's the long and short of it. 
Okay, so here we have those who are willingly, in Second Peter, willingly, we choose to ignore everything that we know, that we've heard. Uh, the heavens are being reserved against this day of judgment for that purpose in some respect. Verse 8 of Second Peter chapter 3, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, this isn't a reference to time per se, but what it is a reference to is that God exists outside of time and everything is being accomplished in his perfect timing. The next verse, and this is one that we talk about regularly, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises or negligent or forgetful, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right? There's this desire that God would have people come to repentance, that they would come to a knowledge and a turning from their, their willing ignorance to an understanding and faith in Christ. But he's not slack. Everything is coming to an end at the appointed time. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So if we talk about this day of the Lord and what happens on that day, according to this verse here, and, and not just here, but this is probably the clearest statement of it, right? That the heavens are going to pass away. I mean, this is it. This is it. This is the conclusion of time. This, as, as we know it today, we, at this point from here on, as we read through the book of Revelations, we're looking at a new heavens and a new earth, right? This earth that's been kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment, now it's burned up. Right? The elements that say continues on, the day of the Lord comes a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So if we understand what this is saying, and here is Paul saying the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, it's unexpected, it's going to come at a time when everything is peace and safety, Right, we have to understand that it is happening. It is coming. That is one truth that we can derive with absolute assurance is that Jesus will return. And that when he does return, this is what we should expect. The judgment is coming. Now there's probably more to unpack there, and there's, uh, in my opinion, there is some reference, and we're going to get to it this morning just a little bit, uh, but when Christ returns, things are drastically different. Now let's read verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, everything that we know today, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In other words, the knowledge and the understanding that Christ is going to return should cause us to consider how we would live today. And in verse 12, he says, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. How should we live while Christ is away? That's, that's what the question. And the knowledge the, of the certainty of his return should, within you and I as believers, create some urgency toward those who are without. We spent some time this morning, we prayed for family and those who have heard the gospel and those who are not saved and we look for and we hope for and desire their coming to faith in Christ. Them being born again and saved from this judgment that is here being described. 
It's going to come at a time that we don't expect it. As a thief in the night. The other illustration that Paul uses in Thessalonians is that of a woman in travail, woman with child. You don't have children without labor. And that's the illustration. That's what he's saying. It's going to happen. So, what verse 3 is indicating in that illustration is that the destruction, the condemnation that happens at judgment is inevitable for those who are apart from Christ. Right For you and I, we understand that, that in Christ, there is no condemnation, that we are spared the wrath of God, and we actually get to that actual that reference here in this section this morning. But those who are apart from Christ, they have a known end. And that known end is, is, is punishment in hell for all of eternity. It's destruction. That's what they've reaped by what they've sown. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. There's nothing else. And thanks be to God and praise, praise the Lord for his mercy where he would deal with us and say, listen, I'm going to send my son to die in your place. So that's what's being discussed here. It isn't the... Uh, in my opinion, the certainty uh, as a coming in a thief in the night and then the travail, and I think that this travail woman being in, in labor and all of those things, I think is sometimes misappropriated. And it's used to illustrate something that may or may not be coming or happening. I think here, and I think what we read, uh, that it is a certainty that they will face judgment. Just as there is a certainty that you're going to have a child when you go into labor, right? Unless they're those fake contractions. But those are all just leading up to the real thing, okay? Every uh, illustration is going to break down somewhere. But this is what it's talking about. They shall not escape, is how he concludes verse 3. There's a certainty of judgment. So this thief in the night idea, day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is going to return, period. And when he does return, judgment happens. And it's an unexpected return. We, we don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know the date. I don't know the time. I don't know the hour. Anybody that would say they do uh, historically has been proven wrong because Jesus has not returned. And anyone who says in the future that Jesus is going to return, and here's the date and the time, and here's all the why, will be proven to be a false prophet because they themselves cannot know, according to the word of God. Okay? Verse 4. <clears throat> he says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Now here we have darkness being used metaphorically. Obviously, it's talking about an unregenerate state. It's talking about ignorance of Christ and his return. It's talking about spiritual blindness. I am unsaved. I've not been born again. You and I who are in Christ, it, it, we are like those who have made preparation. We know with some, some degree of certainty that it, the likelihood of somebody breaking into our house is pretty high. 
that, 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 that it happens. We used to live in, in Hebron there, and twice, on two separate occasions, our cars and our neighbor's cars were gone through. And stuff was taken. Nothing of any particular value, if I don't remember right. I really didn't. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, if there's anything in my car that anybody wants, they could probably have it because it's not, it's not particularly nice, you know? I would rather they don't break the windows and they can just get in <laughs> than I lose the CDs or whatever they took. So what did we start doing? We started doing things differently. We didn't keep anything in there. We're not in darkness. We had this expectation now that this is going to happen. So we behaved differently. We conducted ourselves in a way that was consistent with it. But there are those that are in darkness. We are not in darkness, but there are those that are in darkness, and they're going to be surprised because they don't see it. In Matthew chapter 24 again, as Jesus is continuing his discourse uh, with his disciples about the end times, <clears throat> he says in verse 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We read that earlier, but he says, he continues on in verse 37, but as the days of Noah, or of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And he says, this is what the days of Noah were like in verse 38. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Right? They were just living life. They were doing those things. Uh, obviously, there's some sinful indication there because that was the thoughts and intents of their heart all the time. And so this, this, this marrying and drinking and all those things, you can think of it in, in whatever excess or perversion that it was because that is, in fact, true. And even though you had Noah who was there, as we read uh, in the New Testament, as a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, here he is sharing the gospel. God is going to judge the earth. Rain is coming. Everything's going to be destroyed. And he preached that, and he preached that. Even though they choose, they chose to ignore it. They didn't want to have anything to do with that very truth. So here's Noah. He's fully aware of what's coming. He's made preparation according to the command that God had given him. Right? And we see the ark, and we see uh, the, the foreshadowings of Christ, the singular way of salvation. We see all of that being spared, the wrath and the judgment of God uh, being a fairly consistent picture throughout the Old and the New Testament. But those who weren't on the ark faced the certainty of judgment. God went so far as to say, listen, I'm going to make these floods be how many cubits above even the highest peak, right? There's no, you can't just run to the top of the mountain and stand on the tip of your toes and escape. <coughs> That's not how it was going to work. There was no ground high enough. The judgment was complete and total. There's no escaping it. So this darkness is a metaphor. We are not in darkness, but there are those who are. Our job is to shine the light into the dark. Right? Jesus said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You are lights. I've lit you up for the purpose of giving light to those who are around you. Don't go hide under the bushel. <clears throat> we shine light into the darkness, which is for us also an encouragement. Because we are, as he says in verse 5, you are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So here we know Christ is coming. 
And we made the only provision that we needed to make as a result of that, trust in Christ, being born again through faith, grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that alone. So there's no surprise. We know it's coming. We look forward to it. There's an expectation and a hope and a desire for it even. But understand that for you and I as believers, we're no longer in darkness. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 12 through 14. There's there's numerous places in the New Testament where we could go. Being the discussion from darkness to light. The you and I as believers are no longer children of darkness, but we are now children of light. Colossians 1, 12 through 14, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us make meet or or fit to be partakers <clears throat> of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. But we are brought from darkness and the bondage that it is associated with that into light, which is associated with liberty and freedom. No longer are we under the bonds of sin and death. Now we are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Romans 8, 1 and 2. We're not condemned. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you'll turn there with me. I feel like I have a very stern tone for something so hopeful that we're talking about right now. So just just understand that this is a very hopeful thing. I'm being forceful so that you understand, all right? That's... <laughs> but this, this is, being children of light is, is a discussion about the salvation that we received in Christ. And, and the, the escape of the judgment that is being discussed at the return of Christ. That's why there's so much hope. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. right? And we are all of those things. Why? So that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So from that unregenerate state, from that ignorant state, into a point where we understand, we know we are in right relationship with our Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 10, And in times past, you were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. All right, here we are. We stand as those who are regenerated, through faith in Jesus Christ, who have received mercy, who are under no longer under any condemnation as a result of our faith and the sacrifice that Jesus made. We're not ignorant any longer. We have the Word of God that that is active and living in our lives. It is is dividing us under even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's cutting through all of our stuff. It is that mirror that we look into. It is that which we found our life upon because it is very much so the truth of God. Sanctified by that truth, his word is truth. John 17, 17. Not only that, but we're given the earnest of the, of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said in, in his discussion about the Comforter in John chapter 14 through 16, that part of the ministry that the Holy Spirit will have with you and I as believers, and, and not only a part, but a key part, 
is that he will lead us in truth. That we'll be able to comprehend and understand. Jesus said, hey, you don't have any need that any man would teach you. Why? Because I gave you the Holy Spirit. He's going to instruct you in those things that I've said. Now, that isn't to say that we don't need the fellowship of the body of Christ, nor do, do, do we need the teaching and the preaching ministries that are talked about in Ephesians 4 for the purpose of equipping saints and all of those things. But what it does mean is that we're able to understand. We're no longer ignorant. In Acts chapter 26, if you'll turn there with me, <clears throat> Acts 26, verse 14 through 18, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Is it hard for thee to kick against the prince? Now remember, this is, this is Paul. I mean, we read earlier in the book of Acts about his literal conversion, but this is Paul sharing his testimony with, um, with King Agrippa. Let's see, do I repass Agrippa? We're at King Agrippa. So here he is sharing his testimony with him, and he's just recounting exactly you know, what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And that was the, the, the question that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, posed to him is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? And that was simply a, when you had a yoke of oxen, you had a sharpened stick, and you just poked it along. And sometimes those animals would kick against those. They would react to it. Is it hard for you? Is it painful for you? Because what do you do when it kicks back? You jab a little harder. Right? You're, you're directing things. And here is God, who, uh, Paul, who through the sovereignty of God has been brought to a place where he is uniquely equipped to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He is God's man. Right? I've led you. I've prodded you along and poked you with these sticks all, all through your life to bring you to this point. Why is it so hard for you to get over yourself and be part of what I'm doing. He continues on, though, <clears throat> in verse 15. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand up on thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of the things which thou hast seen and those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Right, So he tells him, get up, Paul, you're going to be the, the guy that I'm sending to the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Sorry, Paul, the specific mission that I'm giving you is to turn them from darkness to light. So here are all the Gentiles. Here is Paul writing about this. And here we are examining Paul's account of what Jesus commissioned him to go, specifically to go and do in regard to the Thessalonians, who are those who were in darkness, who were there bound and destined for judgment, looking forward to only hardship for eternity. Yet Paul had shared the gospel with them. And they'd come from darkness to light. They'd come from ignorance to enlightenment. 
where we understand and we comprehend the love and the mercy of God in his son, Jesus Christ, and they've come to faith. They've been born again. They've been cleansed of the sin that they had, and they've been brought into right relationship, given the earnest of the Holy Spirit, inheritance, co-heirs with Christ, so on and so forth, all of those things. And that is true of you and I in Jesus Christ. That the same gospel message had the same intent that it would bring us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. As we read in Romans chapter 6, right, that we were saved from, from uh, the power of sin that, that encumbered us, and we were brought into the ability and the desire to serve God. <clears throat> that is a very rough paraphrase. <laughs> there it is. Let's read verses 6 through 8 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> he says, hey, understanding that we're no longer in darkness, he says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay. The long and short, and I'm going to just sum it up in a single word, because we read it earlier, right, that we are to be watchful. We're not in the night, and so we're not going to be sleeping. We're not going to be those uh, who are uh, unwatchful. That's what the term sleep means. In, in this, this term in the Greek means to be unwatchful. Right? It's the guy who, who while he's on night watch we talked about this a little bit on tuesday didn't we he's on night watch and he falls asleep he's not doing his job that's not supposed to be us we are to be watchful and the term watchful the, the word watch as it's translated throughout uh, almost exclusively throughout the new testament means to be vigilant means to be constantly about we're doing those things so we're not going to sleep as others do but we're going to watch and be sober. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, as Paul concludes that chapter uh, in a discussion really about the uh, resurrection and looking forward to all that is associated with that, being very much in the same context here, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable. Right, That's that term watchfulness, that, 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 that same principle that we're always in these things always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That we are continually involved in this. Not only that, but he says to be sober. In other words, we are to be self-controlled, which is what, it, what the term means. The way that I've always conceived of it, and, and I think that it's borne out in Scripture, is to be Christ-minded. Right? We're going to think about things the way that Christ thinks about things. We're going to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. That's sober-mindedness. So when we see these things, and we see, like the Thessalonians, we see people that are dying. And we think to ourselves, woe is me, and, and, but we don't grieve the same because we have this hope. Right? We talked about that in chapter 4. When we see events un, un, unraveling around us, uh, like we see in Israel even today, Right? We, we think about it the way that Christ thinks about it. Just as Dave shared this morning, right? We understand that there is some, this is going to happen, that there's going to be a forsaking of Israel as a nation. 
And, and we, we're seeing some of that even now to the extent that we will. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think we're there yet. Could that all change overnight? Absolutely. But here it is, right? We are watchful. We are paying attention. We're thinking about things that we see going on around us the way that God thinks about them. We're not making them any more than they are. We're not making them any less than they are. And we're proving them through the filter of Scripture. They that sleep, sleep in the night. <clears throat> they that are drunken are drunken in the night. Uh, but let us, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith. And we talked about, right, so that's breastplate of faith. That's different than we read in Ephesians chapter 6. Same, same intent though, right? The breast, breastplate of righteousness, that which is protecting us on all sides and, and preventing uh, those arrows from going in when we're, right? It, it's, it's on autopilot, in other words. It does the work uh, that I'm not doing. That's a terrible way to phrase that. We talked about it better on Tuesday. But I pointed out because it's a, we, we talked about it as we study through the armor of God this last week, this, this incredible consistency throughout Scripture of the picture of the armor that we put on. And this is one minor difference, right? We have the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6. Here we have uh, the breastplate <clears throat> of faith. Serving a very similar purpose to the shield of faith is talked about. Uh, anyway, not going to make more of that than it is, but I pointed out because we have recently talked about it. And the helmet of salvation. So, turns me to Galatians chapter 6 for just a moment. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially them that are of the household of faith, <clears throat> Right, so here's this description going on in Galatians chapter 6 of being watchful, being about the business of our Father in His absence. Right, We're not going to be like the rest of the world that is in darkness, that is unwatchful, that is sleeping in the night, that is running to excess, that is, that is unsober in their thinking, uh, and, and willing to be ignorant of everything that, that is happening and the truth of, of who Christ is and what He's done. And we're those who were in the light. And as a result of that, we understand that they're reaping what they sow and we're reaping what we sow. And they're sowing to the flesh and they're going to reap of the flesh destruction. Here we are sowing to the Spirit and we're going to reap life everlasting. And as a result, and, and as a further discussion of that, in Galatians, he talks about us, let us not be weary in well-doing. In other words, be watchful, be vigilant, be continually in this pursuit. And take those opportunities, he says, especially to them who are of the household of faith, to do good unto all men. Now, that's not an exclusion of doing good to those who are outside of the church, but that's the primary outlet. We take that opportunity. In Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 27 and 28. 
Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Right? Let our conversation be consistent with the gospel of Christ, is what he said. Right? We, and we, we talked about it, that there are hypocrites in the church. It's true. We are fallen people who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that alone. We were not in an instant, however, perfected. And there's an ongoing struggle with sin and a sanctification process that happens. What we fail to do is to confess our sin, whether it's before the Lord or even to those that we may have offended, so that we live this two-faced life, this hypocrisy. We need to own our sin. We need to confess it. We need to repent. <clears throat> but as he talks here, that we are to stand fast in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Hand in hand, as it were, uh, both individually yoked with Christ, but obviously yoked with one another in some respect, to, to build upon that metaphor. That here we are toward the common goal of God's glory and his kingdom. And that we're not terrified, we're not afraid of our enemies, which to them is an evident, he says, is an evident token of their perdition, right? Their persecution of the saints is an evidence of their heart, where they're at, of their imminent judgment. It's going to happen. But for you and I, he says, that it is a token, uh, that, uh, it's a token of the salvation that we received in Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 would say that whoever would live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this is the saying the same thing. We are watching because we know that there is persecution coming, because there is hardship coming. We are watching, uh, in many respects, for those reasons. But ultimately, what are we watching for? We're watching for that hope that is associated with it. Turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 15. <clears throat> John 15, 15, excuse me, 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So here we are. We are in relationship with Christ. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's not removing himself from us. We may choose to be unwatchful and to be those who are sleeping on the job, as it were. We may choose to be those who, who are not in service or about our Father's business. And what we derive in, in some application here from Jesus' words in John 15 is that as a result of that, we're going to be unsuccessful. right? That, that I may put my hand to do the work, but I'm doing it in my own strength and I'm doing it for my own glory. And as a result of that, I'm going to reap destruction. But as I am in service to Christ, as I abide with him, as I walk hand in hand with my Lord, what do we derive? Success. 
and I'm not talking financial or, or business-wise or anything, while that might be true, that's not the point here. The, the point is, are we abiding with Christ? Are we sowing to the flesh or are we doing other things? Are we being watchful and self-controlled, sober, or are we being uh, negligent in those things that we should be doing? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we, even at a very fundamental level, being about the most important thing that we as believers should be about? Or are we neglecting even those things? <clears throat> he says, as we uh, uh, just to remind us what he says in verse 8, he says, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I already referenced 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We There's a certainty of attack, so be prepared. And, and thanks be to God that we are, while we are here occupying this foreign land, knowing that there is an imminent attack, that we are going to be persecuted, that we are going to have trouble here, he didn't leave us without any protection. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, we have the armor of God described, which is just fresh in my mind because we studied through that. Right? We have all of these implements of both offensive and defensive uh, weaponry that we would put on, that we would bear about us. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Right? We have to understand that, the, that we are not fighting a physical battle, though it may manifest itself in a physical realm. We're fighting a spiritual battle. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, I believe it's chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, and mighty to the bringing down of strongholds. Right? Therefore, we take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. So we understand that we're in a spiritual battle. It is we see those who are coming against Israel, for example. That is a spiritual attack. Those are the people of God that, that he has used as his example throughout. And not only that, but he has a future plan for. And so here is the enemy. Stirring up the enemies against God's people. When we face persecution, and we've talked about this in the past, right? It's not personal. Don't take it personal. It's actually an attack on Christ. It's an attack on the gospel. It's an attack against him, not against you. Though you may be on the front line, right? He continues on, though, in discussion about the armor of God. Verse 13, wherefore, knowing the certainty and the, the type of battle that we have, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. And we're not going to go through each one of these things individually, but as we talked about on Tuesday Right, I, I remember as a young believer, if you were there Tuesday, you can check out for just a moment because it's going to be the same story that I told uh, on Tuesday. 
However, I, I remember being a, being a young believer. Well, how do you, being very confused as to how you put on the armor of God. Right? I mean, I, nobody, when I was born again, issued me a sword. Uh, I didn't get special shoes. I don't have a fancy belt. Don't have a shield, no breastplate, don't have a helmet hanging in the closet, right? So, so it's obviously not physical, and I, and I understood that. It's a metaphor that's being painted here, but how do you put it on? And it was very helpful for me to realize, and so I just put this out there for anyone else that may be helpful for, that putting on the armor of God is a lifelong endeavor. That we are given this armor, this is God's armor, he's given it to us, and we put it on. Now, if you're a if you're a newbie soldier, right? And I'm just because I've never been to boot camp, so I'm just making some assumptions. I've seen some movies, so it's probably pretty close, right? The day one of boot camp. That's no, not day one. Day one of boot camp, you're going to stand. If you're a marine, you're standing in those yellow for like the first week. You just stand in the yellow footprints. This much I do know. But part of what you're learning how to do is to assemble, disassemble, and assemble your weapon. And on day one you're probably not very good at it, right? You've been given the weapon. You, you're provided. Everything you need to defend yourself is given to you, but you're not particularly good at its use. And over the time of practice and training and practice and training and practice and training and practice and practice and practice, you get better at it. And in many respects, putting on the armor of God is very similar. God has given it to us. And I'm convinced that we all have the armor of God available to us at the moment of salvation. However, we're not particularly good at it. So for me, it was very helpful to understand that putting on the armor of God is simply a discussion about spiritual development, growing in faith. Because the first thing that we have to do, right, we understand uh, that we're putting on the whole armor of God <clears throat> and that we're doing this. Finally, my brother, he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might that we're trusting in him, that he has provided everything necessary. So it's really a discussion, in my opinion, about spiritual development. And I get better and better at wielding the sword of God. Why? Because I've been studying it. That I understand that I've got my loins girt about with, the, with truth. Why? Because I've found in myself and I, upon the authority of God's revealed truth. That I grow in faith as I see his faithfulness over and over and over, so on and so forth. Right, We have those things that are happening, that are there for us. God has not left us without protection. Not only that, but he's given us some of those implements so that we may take and hold ground. Right, We're moving forward and we have to have our feet shot with a preparation. And, and we, we emphasize it's preparation of the gospel of peace. Obviously, that infers that we're sharing the gospel, but it also means that we're preparing to share the gospel, that we're developing in such a way that we can contend for the faith. We're taking ground, but we're not going backwards. We're holding that ground. So preparation is not only for attack, but it's preparation for right living, which is a discussion that's being had here in Thessalonians. How do we live? How do we occupy in this life until Jesus returns? In Philippians chapter 4, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, Paul writes, for you and I, now that I speak, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. 
everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Right, so here is Paul's description. I can, no matter where God puts me, no matter where his sovereignty has me landed, no matter what state I might be in physically, well off or starving or anything in between, I can be content. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about me being about his business. And he goes on and he says this, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Now, we talk about in Ephesians chapter 2, being his workmanship, and we're created in Christ Jesus on the good works, which is before ordained that we should walk in them. Right? That God has a specific plan and purpose for you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't think that Christ is going to give me the strength to do the things that I shouldn't be doing. They might be good things, but they're not things that he's called me to. That makes sense. Just because I want to... Right, it's like Jurassic Park. Just because you could doesn't mean that you should. You, right? You never thought about it? That, that you shouldn't do that? And the same is true for us. That God has a particular plan and purpose for you, both, and we talk about it in the terms of the general will of God and the specific will of God. You should be sharing the gospel. How do I know that? Because Jesus told you to do it. But there are other things that it doesn't say, Sam, Andrew, born this day, this place, I want you to go and do this specific particular thing here. I mean, if it did, it would be easy, right? We would just go do it. But the Holy Spirit interacting with you and I is going to lead us to a point of understanding where this is the calling that he's put upon our life or upon your life. And wherever that may be, for you and I who are parents, we know that part of that will is for, for us to be parents. Therefore, I know that as much as it may be a struggle for me, not knowing what I'm doing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be a father through the strength of Christ, through his grace. And you could be a mother, and you could be a grandparent, and you could be whatever it may be, the job that you may have, right? We can do whatever God has called us to. We need to be ready and active. We are putting on the armor of God so that we might be prepared in these avenues of life that we find ourselves in whatever they may be, whatever they may be. Knowing that he's going to give us his strength for those tasks. We're not called to do it. Now, it may be something hard. Don't get me wrong. It may be something hard. Moses was called to do something very hard. I mean, just go in there into enemy territory, literally. Talk to the king who everybody thinks is a god, who's not really a god, but everybody thinks he is. Oh, yeah, by the way, you're wanted for murder there. Remember that? And tell them to let, you know, your entire labor force go. That's not an easy task. Yet he had everything he needed to do it. When, when Moses stood there with his shoes off on the holy ground there at the burning bush, and he said, well, I can't speak. I've provided your brother, Aaron. He can speak on your behalf. You know, how they're not going to know this. I don't even know your name. How, who am I going to tell him to send me? Tell him, I am that I am. Right? I mean, everything that he needed was provided for him by the Lord. In the same way, you and I, everything that we need to do, what God has called us to do, as hard as it may seem, as unfathomable as it may be, we can do it because he has promised his grace to accomplish it. Okay? We, we prepare for doing those things, though, even before we get called to them. 
Even before God called Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he had him for 40 years as a shepherd. I mean, he was in preparation. He was in training for leading large flocks of things around in the desert. <laughs> Learning to trust the Lord for 40 years. In Romans chapter 13, <clears throat> Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. And that knowing the time that now is high time, to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. There's a training process that we may or may not realize that we're in for the things that God has called us to do. General and specific will of God intended. And as Paul is talking to the Thessalonian church, he says, listen, Christ is coming back. You are not those who are abiding in darkness. You are not those who are unaware of this. Therefore, what you need to do is be watchful and sober. Be about the business that I've called you to be about. If Jesus said, listen, boys, we're not going to talk about the end times. What I need you to do is go and be my witnesses. We need to be about his business. This is what I want you to do while I'm gone. Jesus told us. And Paul is saying the same thing. Now, for you and I, as we look at these last few verses this morning to close, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11, for God has not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as you do. So here we are. We understand that we are in the light, and what we understand as a result of that is that there is business to be done, and that we have this equipping from the Lord, and that through his strength, his grace, we can do all of those things. Not only that, Here's Paul and his entire discussion, his entire focus upon the end times is twofold. What are you doing in my absence? And it's all about the hope that it brings. The understanding of our deliverance. Knowing that Christ, as it says in verse 10, Jesus Christ who died for us, whether we wake or whether we sleep, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we should live together with him. That when he comes and the day of the Lord actually happens in judgment and all those things takes place and this earth is consumed with fervent heat and all the elements are burned up that what happens next is the new heavens and the new earth and there we are we're present with him and we're not those who are destined for wrath right wrath is the outpouring of god uh, of justice upon the world just like we see happening in genesis chapter 6 at noah's flood Right? All of that is looking forward to and, and, and illustrative in some respect of what is going to happen at Jesus' return, this imminent judgment. The good news is we're on the ark. We're already there. The door's been closed. We're not getting out. Nobody else is getting in. Right, We're, we're protected. 
We're floating above all that. We're, we're above and not appointed to his wrath. The predetermined plan of God for you and I who are in Christ is salvation, deliverance. But the predetermined plan for those who are outside of Christ is destruction, is judgment. God made a bona fide offer to all of mankind. We read it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any would perish. He's long-suffering to us words so that as many as could would come to faith. Now, there's a lot of lot more to unpack there, but for sake of discussion, right, there is an offer of life for those who would come to faith. In John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus himself would say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Right? That here is God's plan. He sent Jesus Christ that he might save the world. And who is encapsulated in the world? Well, it's not specifically those that God chose. Right? This choosing that happens is the predetermined plan. The, pre, the predestination to either be born again through faith in Jesus Christ or not be born again and suffer destruction. But the offer is bona fide. It's a sincere offer that God has made and a provision that he's made for every person. That's only applicable to those who receive it. It doesn't apply where you have to be on the ark to be floating on the water. But the ark's there. And time has passed, and we share the gospel in that meantime. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin so that we could be made his righteousness. That God, in the midst of showing us his love by sending Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 8, would make him the penalty of all sin, that he would pour out all of his wrath and punishment on Jesus Christ for all of sin, for your sin and my sin and the sin of your neighbor, your friend, the guy that you talk to at the grocery store, the people that you work with, whoever it may be, all sin was upon Jesus Christ. His wrath was there. That's what took place on the cross. So that as we read in Romans chapter 3, God could be just, and the justifier. Sin has to be punished. And in Jesus Christ, it was punished. And as a result of him being the object of God's wrath, when we accept by faith what Jesus Christ has done, we are then justified. We are brought as brought into newness of life and made like we had never sinned. We are clothed in his righteousness. But there's an appropriation that happens. You have to be on the ark. You have to accept by faith all that God has provided. If we are delivered for you and I as believers, that is the hope. Just looking forward to, as I've said before, right, that this life right now, as hard as it may be, is as bad as it gets. This is as bad as it gets. And we all know people that have gone through a lot of stuff, and it seems like they somehow have an unfair shake. I mean, that's not unfair. It's God and his sovereignty and whatever is going on there is going on there. God is faithful to them. But even for them, as bad as it gets, that's as bad as it gets. And it only gets better. I has not, I'm going to get it wrong, right? We can't even think or imagine what God has in store for us. As we read, I think it was in Romans 8 last week, two weeks ago, right, that, that our future... Our, our, the sufferings, the hardships that we have in this life 
are not to be compared. They're not even on the same level for comparison as the glory that will be revealed in us. What hope and expectation we have as believers. We are not in darkness. We know Christ is coming. We know that we are delivered. What fervency and zeal should that spark within us toward those who are outside of Christ? Right? We need to shine a light into the darkness. What are we doing in the absence of Christ up until his return? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the opportunity to be in your word. God, I thank you for uh, Paul's simple and direct addressing of uh, what has become a divisive topic in the church. And Lord, we praise you at the simplicity that uh, the, the big takeaway for us, while there is value in studying and knowing, the big takeaway for us, Lord, is, is that we need to be about your business, that you've given us everything that we need to be about your business, Lord, and that there is such hope as believers. The expectation of deliverance. We praise you for that, Lord. As a result of all that Christ has done, as a result of everything that we receive so freely at his hands by his sacrifice, God, we, we worship him. We give thanks. We sing praise and adoration for what he has done and for who he is. And Lord, we pray that as we do so now, as we come into a time of worship and thanksgiving, that you would be honored. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.